Before I read this passage, I'll just tell you a short little thing that happened to me a number of years ago now. This was back when we were living in Milwaukee, and uh, there is a store there called Menards, which uh, we, we don't have that here, but picture a Rona. It's very similar to Rona. So I was in Rona with uh, my firstborn daughter. She's 19 now and home from university, but she was three at the time. And we were in Menards, and I was, we were in the lumber section of Menards, and I was looking at lumber for a project on our deck. And all of a sudden, I looked around, and Lois was not there. <laughs> there was nowhere to be found. She just disappeared. And so there I am alone in the lumber section with no daughter, and I begin to search the store, thinking to myself, this cannot be happening to me. There is no way that I'm that dad (laughs) that lost my three-year-old kid in the hardware store. And so I'm searching around, looking, and every minute that goes by, my panic level is increasing. Right? And now I'm, now I'm moving quite quickly through all the aisles, and now I'm looking at all the people. I'm looking for suspicious characters who may have my daughter. And I'm thinking about, okay, what now? Do I need to go and find the intercom person and do an announcement? And what would Lois do if she heard that announcement? Would that help or would that freak her out? And, and as I'm rounding the corner thinking all these thoughts, there she is, a huge grin on her face, sitting in the patio department, on a rocking chair, <laughs> rocking, and, and, and she has this look on her face when I see her. She clearly doesn't know that anything is wrong at all. She's very actually quite proud of herself. She's smiling. It's, it's, it's this look on her face like, I don't know what you're so upset about, Dad, but I'm having a great time here. <laughs> Did you not know that I would find the nearest rocking chair? <laughs> you should have known that I would be here. That was the, that was the vibe I was getting from little Lois. So this morning, we're going to be reading a passage of Scripture that contains a similar story, a somewhat similar story. It's a story about parents who lost a kid. But the point of this story that we're about to read is not Mary and her moment of panic. The point of this story is Jesus' response to his mom. Jesus' response to his mom tells us his own understanding of why he has entered into the world. So, quickly before I read it, one other little um, footnote to the sermon. I I realize that Jesus is 12 years old in this passage, and I realize that this is an ongoing debate in our family, but 12 years old is not technically a teenager yet when you're 12. But, in Jewish culture, a boy is considered a man at 13. Right? So year 12, year 12 is the transitional year between boyhood and manhood, which is kind of what the teenager years are all about. And, and so even though he's only 12, uh, we're going to consider Jesus a teenager at this point. Okay, Luke in chapter 2, and I'm starting in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. 
Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, I'll just read that again. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his, and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his help. Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider together this particular story and to think about what it means what it meant for you, Jesus, to say these words to your mom, and what it means for us that you said these words. In Christ's name, amen. Well, no doubt, as I read it, you noticed that this story is sandwiched between two summary statements about the growth of Jesus, the physical growth of Jesus. These, these statements are emphasizing the human nature of Jesus. He was, as we know, both fully God and fully man, or in the case of this passage, he's fully God and fully boy, fully 12-year-old. And these two statements about his earthly development are indicators that he was a full-blooded human being. He experienced physical and intellectual and spiritual growth, just like anyone else. This is what I find particular about, interesting about this particular passage. I, I find for myself, I don't I don't have much of a problem thinking about Jesus as a fully grown man, fully God, fully man. I've thought a lot about that. I've gotten used to the idea of thinking about baby Jesus being fully God and, and fully human. But somehow fully God and fully 12-year-old kind of blows my mental categories of who Jesus is. I'm just not in the habit of thinking of him, God, as a 12-year-old. It just kind of blows my minds of what what 12-year-olds are all about. It's, it's, it's strange for me to think about Jesus' growth and maturation over time, right? But the, Jesus, the Bible teaches that he was fully man in every way, fully human, real human, just without sin, never sinned. That means, if he's fully human, that means he had to learn how to read. No human was ever born knowing how to read. He had to learn that. Someone had to teach him. Someone had to walk him through that process. This is what the letter is. This is the sound that the letter makes. This is when you put them together, you make this. It's called a word. Jesus had to learn all those things. Jesus was not born with the entire contents of Scripture downloaded into his brain. It's not how humans work. He had to study Scripture in order to learn it. He grew. It says he grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor. He grew. 
That means he got more wise over time. That's what grew in wisdom means. In the same way that he grew in stature, he also grew in wisdom. Everyone understands what it was like for him to grow in stature, right? Physical growth. He started small and got big. Joseph and Mary probably had marks on the wall, just like many parents do, to measure little Jesus' growth over the months, right? That's what parents do. No doubt, I'm guessing here, but no doubt, young Jesus stood back to back with his best friend to see who was to mom, who's taller, who's taller, right? Surely he did stuff like that. He grew in stature over the years, and he grew in wisdom as well. So the encouragement here is not to make Jesus less than he is in our attempts to make him more than he is. What I mean that if out of respect for Jesus, we say, oh, Jesus always knew everything all the time. He never needed to be taught anything. He never forgot where he put his tools in the shop. Well, in effect, you've made less of Jesus by trying to make more of him. Because you're saying he wasn't fully human. He didn't experience the same everyday things that humans do. But he did. He was fully human and he did experience those things. Jesus' humanity was not an act. It was real. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful second person of the Trinity The person, Jesus, who was present and active at the creation of the world, we're told. He voluntarily humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, and he really became a human. And he went through the regular process of development that all humans go through, except he did it without ever sinning in any way. That is the point of those summary statements at the beginning and the end of this passage. They are reminders that he was fully human in all of the all of the details that that entails. So here's the scene. Fully human, 12-year-old Jesus. Mary and Joseph are going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They do this every year. According to Mosaic law, Joseph is commanded to make this trip every year. Mary is not commanded to go. Mary doesn't have to go, but she's certainly welcome and invited and encouraged to go. And apparently... Their practice is that they go together. Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. Now, whether or not Jesus had accompanied them in the past, we do not know. But we do know this. Once a boy turned 13, as I mentioned, he's considered a man. The phrase they use there is he's considered a son of the commandment. You turn 13, you're a son of the commandment. You're a man and all the responsibilities that that entails. That means you're a full member of the synagogue. And so the rabbis taught, the practice was when a boy turns 12, so the year when, when the Passover, when he's 12 years old, he goes with his father to Jerusalem and he learns the rituals for the Passover. He learns how to celebrate the Passover as a man. And that's why it says in verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom. Why does Luke tell us that was according to the custom? Because just in case we don't know, the custom was when you're 12 and you're a boy, you accompany your father and you learn the ropes and you learn the rituals because next year when you're 13, you're going to be considered a man and you're going to be doing this yourself. And so as was the custom, Jesus went with when he was 12 in preparation 
for when he was a man. The trip from where they lived uh, in Galilee to the big city in Jerusalem was probably about 130 kilometers. 130 kilometer trip each way. So what would have happened is Jesus and his family would have gathered together with a bunch of other families in a large group and they would all make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem together. They did it together both for the purpose of protection, it's safer to travel dangerous roads in a big crowd, but also just for the blessing of fellowship. It's fun to travel together as a group. It's a, that would have been several days journey to get there. They would, have, they would have arrived in the ancient city of Jericho. From there, they would take the western road into the hills of Judea. On the last leg of the journey, right, the day that they are to arrive, they begin to approach the holy city. And they would have then, tradition would have been that they begin to sing the psalms, chant the psalms of ascent together as they approach the city so that they're singing psalms of worship to God as they first lay eyes on the holy city. And they've come for the Passover, right? Now, this is the highlight of the year. Everyone, like, kind of right now, a lot of us are in what we consider the highlight of the year. Christmas is a big deal. A lot of people look forward to it. I know our young people are really excited about tomorrow. That's kind of how people would have felt about the Passover and about the big trip to Jerusalem. It's the best time of the year. Making the pilgrimage, going to the temple, celebrating the feast of the Passover. It's a, it's a week-long party, a week-long worship celebration and all your best friends and family are there together it's a big deal it's a big week so finally they arrive at the peak of the mount of olives this is a place that jesus will become very much more familiar with later in life in mount of olives and they look down upon jerusalem and upon the temple massive temple complex right a huge percentage of the city is devoted to the temple right and they look down and they see probably about 200,000 pilgrims have made the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Massive crowd, extended family, people of God, the nation of Israel gathered together to worship. Right? And probably in addition to maybe 200,000 people, there's also about 100,000 sheep. Think about that number. 100,000 sheep making noise, making a mess, <laughs> being herded around, right? Being chased, not knowing what awaits them in a few hours, right? So they're looking down on people and sheep. This is an especially important year for Joseph and Jesus, as we've mentioned, because Joseph is showing Jesus the ropes of what it means to celebrate the Passover as a, as a man. So then they go. Joseph probably has some instruction for Jesus about how to pick out a lamb, pick out a good one, pick out one without spot or blemish. He's probably giving instructions to his boy, look for this, you look for this. This one's not so good, but look at this one, it's a good one, right? Instructing him how to purchase the lamb for the Passover. And then it is prepared for sacrifice. The sacrifices begin at three in the afternoon. A ram's horn is blown, that noise of the ram's horn indicates that this is about to begin. The sacrifices are about to take place. The lamb that Jesus and Joseph have picked out is slaughtered along with thousands and thousands of others. The priests are standing by in long rows. They're catching the blood of those lambs in 
gold and silver basins and then they splash it on the base of the altar. You remember we had an altar here a couple years ago, a recreation. So if you can picture that, if you were here for that, they're taking this blood from all of these thousands of lambs, they're carrying it over, splashing it onto the altar, making a huge, huge mess with all of the blood. And 12-year-old Jesus is there for this. Right? We know that he is. We're not guessing. We're told that he's there for this. Twelve-year-old Jesus watching. Now keep in mind, he's 12 now. In about roughly 18 years or so, he's going to be walking and his cousin John is going to see him and make an announcement. Do you remember this? Cousin John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's John's explanation of what Jesus came to do. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb that takes away the sins of the world is now, in this scene, 12 years old. And he is watching thousands upon thousands of lambs be sacrificed, symbolically have their blood shed, to atone for the sins of Israel. Think about that. Jesus the lamb is watching those lambs get slaughtered. And then Joseph dresses the lamb, slings the animal wrapped in its own skin. They had a special way of doing that. And then he would sling the lamb in its own skin over his shoulder and they would walk and bring it to the place where they were going to prepare to eat the Passover feast. And at this feast, it was the same liturgy every time. The same things got said every time. It was a way for Israel to remind themselves of their origin story, of what happened, their delivery from Egypt. And so every time at Passover, a child, the smallest child at the table, will ask the question, why is this night different than all other nights? It's the one line that the youngest kid has. He's been working on it all week or all year. And he stands up and says, why is this night different? Different than all other nights. And then the oldest male at the table, right, the the head of the household, Joseph in this case, answers that question, explains why this night, the night of Passover, is different than every other night. And in answering that question, the head of the household tells the story of the Passover. The story of how God rescued the people, his people, from slavery in Egypt. And he recounts the story of how there was a slaughtering of all the firstborn in the land on this night. All the firstborn were wiped out. But God passed over the houses. Which houses? The ones that had blood on the door. Blood? Blood from what? Blood from the lamb that was slain. And put on the doorpost. And put on the lintel. And so the angel of death passed over the houses that had blood on them. And then they were brought to freedom from slavery. And 12-year-old Jesus is sitting at the table this year and he's listening to all this. He knows the story. He's heard it. But he's hearing it again. He's being reminded again of how God delivered Israel from slavery. Now, We always have to keep in mind that this boy is the one who will be responsible for delivering God's people from spiritual slavery. 
He's the one who's going to bring us from death to life through the shedding of his own blood on the cross. He's sitting there now listening to the story of how God delivered his people from slavery through the shedding of blood. And so the family, the family celebrates the Passover. They then stay in town for the remainder of the Passover celebration, which was a full week. Must have been pure joy and delight for young Jesus. Just imagine, he's in Jerusalem, he's with the people of God, he's, he's in the temple. It's just, it's just a week of bliss for him. And then at the end of the week, right, you know how it is after a big party. It's, then, then you have the work of cleaning up and packing up and saying goodbye and praying prayers. And then the caravan reassembles. Everybody find your buddy. Let's make sure everybody's here. And let's head back. Now, what happened? Somebody got left behind. How did that happen? Well, oftentimes in these caravans, the way that it worked logistically is that oftentimes the men would travel together in the back of the pack. And the women and children would be at the front of the pack. So it's not hard to figure out what happened here on this year when Jesus is 12, right? Jesus is 12. That means he's at that transitional age. Is he a full-grown man? Well, he's getting there, but not quite yet. Is he still a child? Well, not really. Do we put him at the adult table? Do we put him at the children's table? I don't know. He's kind of in between. Where do we put him? I don't know, right? And so it's not hard to figure out that Mary took a look around with the women and children and didn't see Jesus and thought, oh, good for him. He has graduated up and he's traveling with the men. And Joseph took a look around amongst the men and didn't see Jesus and thought, oh, well, one more year. <laughs> one more year, he's up, he's up with the women and children. Fine, he's only 12. Next year, he'll be back with us. They both assumed he was with the other, but he wasn't. So they, make, they travel under those assumptions for a day, a whole day. That was, on average, they could cover about 20 miles of walking in a day. So they travel for 20 miles. They've been walking all day. I don't know if you've ever walked 20 miles in a day. It's, that's a long day. You're tired at the end of it. They gather up. It's dinner time. They make the food preparations. They're ready to eat. It is at this point that Mary and Joseph have a conversation, presumably, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. What? He's not with you? Where is he? (laughs) And now they're looking around and checking and trying to figure out, is he there? Is he he with you? Did you see him? Hey, did you see him? No? Well, what happened? And they piece it all together, and they figure out that he's been left behind in Jerusalem. Now that's 20 miles away, and it's dark out. They cannot head back out in the middle of the night. That would not be safe. And so they go through what I assume is a sleepless night as they worry about um, their son and what has happened to him. And uh, they are able to set off in the morning. I'm laughing because my family and I just watched Home Alone and I just realized (laughs) that's the plot. They stole the plot from Luke 2. So they they have left their son, as implausible as it sounds, and now they have to head back the next morning, another 20-mile hike to get back to Jerusalem, and then they have to find him in Jerusalem. So they arrive. Now, do the math. By the time they arrive, two days have now passed with 12-year-old Jesus is missing. They spend the third day looking for him. Remember, the temple complex is huge. It's 35 acres. It takes a while to find him, but eventually they find him sitting in the temple with a lot of local Bible scholars listening and asking questions. 
That was the teaching method back then, question and answer. Apparently, Jesus was both answering the tough questions that were being asked, and he was also asking some of his own questions. And there's a crowd of people around listening to this boy and are amazed at the wisdom that is coming out of the mouth of this 12-year-old boy. And so then his mom shows up. Every 12-year-old boy's nightmare. His mom says, son, <laughs> why have you treated... I don't know. We don't know tone. That's one of, the, one of my regrets or my wishes is that we read the Bible and we know what it says. We, we, don't know, we don't always know how it was said. I don't know what the tone was here. But I was once a 12-year-old boy and I had a mom. <laughs> and I can imagine what the tone was here. Son, why have you treated us so? She's hurt. She's probably upset. She's also relieved at the same time. It's a complex emotion, right, moms? <laughs> relieved and, and happy and upset. Uh, moms are able to do that all at once, right? And so she says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And it is right here at this moment that we get the climax of the story. It's his response. Twelve-year-old Jesus says this, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Right? He presents it like there's not options here. There was only one place I could be. What, how, do you, how do you not understand this yet, Mom? I had to be in my father's house. Now, that response there is, is notoriously difficult to translate. The word house is not actually in the original. The word house is not there. Uh, I think that the King James Version actually does the best job of getting at the heart of what Jesus is saying. In the King James Version, Jesus says, Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Right? I think, I think that gets a little bit more at what he actually said. I, I, I must be about my father's business. The main point of Jesus' statement is not about his location in the temple. It's about the fact that Jesus is on a mission. Jesus came here to do something. He's going about his father's business. He must. He has no option. He must be about his father's business. It's why he came to earth. This is his mission statement. Twelve-year-old boy, very self-aware. This is his purpose statement in life. He came to be about his father's business. That supersedes anything and everything else. The origins of that mission go not back to his birth. They go all the way back to Genesis 3. Right? When the serpent started spinning his web of deceit and temptation... And in fact, technically, it goes back even further than that because God was not taken off guard by our sin. He saw it coming all along. Before he even created the world, he had the gospel in mind. He had our salvation in mind. He knew that it would come to this. So the first words ever recorded from the mouth of Jesus, these are them. He is on the eve of manhood in Jewish culture. He is sitting in the temple. He has just celebrated the feast of the Passover. And he is declaring to his mom and to everyone else his mission statement. He says, Mom, don't you understand? I'm here for a purpose. I must be about my father's business. This is all part of the plan. It's why I came. That's what he says to his mom. 
Those words of 12-year-old Jesus remind me of some words that grown-up Jesus spoke. In John 6, he's basically doing the same thing, explaining his mission, explaining why he came, and he basically says the same thing. John 6 and verse 38, Jesus speaking, says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I, I must be about my father's business. Isn't that what he's saying? This is the will of him who sent me. He tells us that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's why he came. That's his, his own explanation of what in the world he's doing here. Basically repeating what he said when he was 12. Do you not know? I'm, I'm here to be about my father's business. Well, what's your business? Well, let me tell you. This is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. That's why I'm here, to give that gift. God the Father has a plan of redemption. It has been unfolding ever since our rebellion. God the Son has a key role to play in that plan. And here we are, listening to a conversation between the Son and his earthly mom. On the eve of his manhood. And we're, we get to overhear as he explains to his mom, Mom, I'm here for a purpose, don't you know? Don't you? Don't you know? I'm different. I'm different. Surely you know that, Mom. I'm here to be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. All of history has been building up to this. The arrival of the Savior to accomplish the father's business. Paul summarizes it succinctly. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his father's business. To reveal the glory of God to the people of God and to redeem the people of God for the glory of God. That's what he came to do, and he did it. He took care of his father's business. It is finished. Now, we don't know if he knew all the details of how things would unfold at this point in his life. He knew enough to know that God Almighty was his father, which, by the way, that was unheard of for a Jew to refer to God as his father back then. And he knew that he was here for the purpose of being about his father's business and that nothing was going to get in the way of that. After this incident, Jesus goes home, we're told, with Mary and Joseph. He remains submissive to them. He remains obedient to them. But we're told that Mary takes this statement from her boy and she puts it in her treasure chest. It says that she treasured all these things in her heart. And that is where I want to land this morning. By way of application, I am not, it is not the plan this morning for me to now turn to us and say, and you and I need to take care to be about God's business too. And let that be a lesson to us. We better be about God's business. That's not where we're going with this sermon. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, sh we, should, we should abide in the will of of God our Heavenly Father. He has revealed His will to us in Scripture. We should follow it. That is important. God cares about our holiness. But you and I will never learn to walk that blessed path of obedience to God and delighting in the Lord until we learn to do like Mary. Don't bypass this step. But take these things 
and treasure them in your heart. Take this truth this morning and put it deep down in the treasure chest of your heart. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he accomplished that mission. There, I find no verse in the whole Bible that says Jesus Christ came into the world to save Jason Dahlman. That verse doesn't exist. But it does say that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I fit that description. I am a sinner. And therefore, I remind myself this Christmas, and I remind you this Christmas, that Jesus came for me, and he came for you. I am a sinner, and I needed a Savior, and therefore, it is incredibly good news to be reminded this Christmas Eve that Jesus is about his Father's business. I treasure that truth in my heart. It is my only source of salvation. It is the only motivation that I need for my obedience to God. And I am so glad that Luke gave us this little window into this scene that took place between a 12-year-old boy who is the Savior of the world and his mom, explaining that he came to do God's will to save sinners like me and you. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for including this story in your word. Thank you for the message that this sense sends to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithful and consistent obedience throughout your life to your earthly parents and to your heavenly Father. Thank you that you never sinned. Despite the fact that you grew and matured throughout your life, you grew in size and you grew in wisdom, you grew in maturity, and yet you never sinned through the whole process. We thank you for that. Thank you that you came to be about your Father's business. And thank you that your Father's business includes redeeming and extending eternal life to sinners such as ourselves. We thank you for that Christmas gift. In your name we pray. Amen.